Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, a pandemic-era policy ends as tens of thousands of migrants seek to cross the southern border. Our borders are not open. Upwards of 60,000 migrants are staging in and around the immediate border areas. The Biden administration ends the COVID-19 emergency, but... COVID-19 remains the seventh leading cause of death for Americans. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a recommendation to screen for breast cancer sooner could help black women. Black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer compared to all women. I'm Allison Keyes in the Washington Bureau. Title 42, the Trump-era rule that allowed the swift expulsion of migrants over the pandemic, expired on Thursday. Border cities are already overcrowded and say they aren't ready for a new influx of asylum seekers. The Biden administration has announced a new set of policies meant to deter unlawful crossings, but legal challenges are causing confusion. We begin our team coverage with CBS's Jared Hill in El Paso. With pandemic-era restrictions no longer in place, the U.S. Border Patrol estimates about 60,000 migrants are waiting to enter the U.S. from northern Mexico. This woman says she fled Peru with her children to escape domestic abuse and government instability. U.S. authorities say they will now lean on protocols outlined by the decades-old Title VIII, under which immigrants can be deported from the United States back to their home countries and given a five-year ban on reentry unless they express fear of returning and pass an interview. We provide lawful, safe, and orderly pathways for people to come to the United States when they qualify for relief. But Republican Senator Ted Cruz says a travesty is unfolding and is blaming the Biden administration. This is an invasion and they want the numbers to go up. The city of El Paso is under a state of emergency. Police presence has been beefed up and residents are being told to remain vigilant. Bring it this way. Near the border in El Paso, about 400 asylum seekers are camped out. They were given a choice, return to Mexico or board buses to processing centers. We're going to prevent any further migrants from joining the group that's already here. Asylum seekers are also waiting outside San Diego. KCBS-TV's Michelle Gili reports. I'm just cold. It was a cold night in the field where migrants hoping for asylum in the United States are staging as they wait to be processed by Border Patrol. This man is from Honduras. He says that it was a very hard night, very cold. They're suffering hunger. 
they're suffering against the weather. And he says that there's um, urine and feces everywhere. Um, they've been trying to clean it up themselves, but it's been very tough. There are tables set up outside of the steel border wall with boxes of fruit, medical supplies, diapers, and other supplies. Volunteers who are concerned about the health of the migrants have been showing up to help distribute food and water. Some of the asylum seekers have been here for a week. CBS News immigration reporter Camila Montoya Galvez from El Paso explains the legal challenges going on as of Friday. For the first time in three years, the U.S. can no longer cite the COVID-19 pandemic to expel migrants under Title 42. And what officials said during the briefing was that they have not yet seen a substantial increase in the number of border crossings since Title 42 expired on Thursday at midnight. However, obviously, the number of people crossing the border without permission continues to be at historically high levels. In recent days, this week, Allison, upwards of 10,000 people have arrived along the border per day. That is a record number that has severely strained the Border Patrol's holding capacity. And in addition to that, we spoke to Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz Allison, and he told us that another 60,000 migrants are currently waiting on the Mexican side of the border, and some of them, he expects, will try to cross the U.S.-Mexico border in the coming days. Camila, let me ask you briefly about some of the legal things that happened this week on Mm -hmm. Friday. Uh, What's happening legally, and what does this mean for people at the border right now? So the main policy that the Biden administration has enacted to replace Title 42 is a regulation that essentially says that if migrants cross into the U.S. illegally, after failing to seek protection in another country like Mexico that they traveled through to get to American soil, they are not eligible for U.S. asylum. And migrants who cannot prove that they merit an exemption to this policy can face swift deportation to Mexico or to their home country, as well as a five-year banishment from the U.S. So in many ways, Allison, this is a tougher, more hardline policy than Title 42, because under Title 42, migrants were simply expelled back to Mexico without any of these immigration and criminal consequences. Because now, if migrants try to re-enter the U.S. after being deported, they could actually, actually face jail time and criminal prosecutions. But the ACLU, as you mentioned, has now filed a lawsuit against a sweeping asylum restriction, arguing that it is illegal, so it could very well be struck down in court. And at the same time, in Florida, a judge has ordered the administration to halt a different policy that allowed border officials to quickly release some migrants in order to alleviate overcrowding in detention facilities. And officials believe that this will have a very detrimental effect, that it will lead to severe and dangerous overcrowding in Border Patrol facilities, and that up to 45,000 migrants could be stuck in Border Patrol facilities by the end of the month if that ruling is upheld. At the border of San Isidro, it's been tough for mothers. Many Latin American nations celebrate Mother's Day on May 10th, and they are waiting, hoping to get themselves and their children into the U.S. KFMB-TV's Regina Urita with more. Like Michelle, a migrant mother from Ecuador who during our interview could not contain her tears after I asked her why she would risk her life and her three-year-old daughter's life after making the journey by foot. She tells me the stakes are even more dangerous in her country where the cartel have threatened her and her baby. In the U.S., Mother's Day is celebrated on the second Sunday of May, but in many countries it's celebrated on the 10th. 
For the moms at the border, it's holiday looks like this. People with little to no warm clothes, hardly any food or supplies. You can also see families reaching out through the border fence that separates the U.S. and Mexico. All of them hoping to make it into the United States with their little ones. Pero bueno, con la ayuda de Dios. This migrant woman from Panama also became emotional after telling me with the help of God, she hopes she can give her nine-year-old Vigneta a better life. I asked little Vigneta if she knows how brave her mom has been. She responded with this. Guerrera. Guerrera, a warrior. I'm Regina Urita. Illustrating the American dream, some migrant children are competing in the national championship for chess players in Baltimore this week. Marianne Hel Vargas speaks very little English, but she is fluent in the game of chess. I had two medals. Two medals. And mm -hmm. one trophy? Yeah. Vargas arrived at the U.S. southern border with her family last fall, and they made their way to New York City. After enrolling in school, she joined the chess club run by the nonprofit Gift of Chess. CBS's Astrid Martinez. Coming up, over-the-counter birth control pills? That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had, and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The Biden administration said this week the COVID-19 emergency is officially over, but not only is the virus still killing people, millions could lose their health care coverage. I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. When health officials declared the start of the public health emergency in January of 2020, no one could have imagined that it would last for more than three years and that the virus would claim the lives of more than a million Americans. Since January 20th, 2021, COVID-19 deaths have declined by 95%. Some of the changes to our lives that came about as a result of the pandemic will go away now that the emergency is over. For example, the government will no longer buy up COVID tests and give them out free to all Americans. However, vaccines will remain free for practically everyone, at least through 2024. The biggest change is in Medicaid. People enrolled in the program couldn't be eliminated during the pandemic. As many as 24 million Americans may lose their coverage and would need to reapply. Including kids, recently pregnant women, elderly, disabled, who don't realize that they need to reapply for Medicaid. So we have a lot of folks that are in danger of losing their insurance. Health officials are also warning that just because the emergency is over, it doesn't mean that COVID is no longer a threat. COVID-19 remains the seventh leading cause of death for Americans. 
continues to kill about a thousand Americans a day. Some changes, such as rules that allow doctors to write prescriptions via telehealth, are staying in place for now. Nicole D'Antonio, CBS News, Washington. A potentially dramatic expansion of women's reproductive health care could be on the horizon. An FDA advisory panel has unanimously recommended that a popular birth control pill be sold over the counter without a prescription. A final decision is expected this summer. First approved in the 1970s, the birth control drug Opil has been prescribed by doctors for decades. Now it could hit store shelves by the end of the year. This really provides women with a lot more um, autonomy and control over their contraception and, and how and when they get pregnant. In order to be effective, Opel needs to be taken every day at the same time within a three-hour window. But some consumers should avoid the drug completely. The Opel may not be as effective in women who are overweight and could cause medical issues and complications if you are somebody who has breast cancer or abnormal vaginal bleeding. The FDA panel weighed concerns that some people may not follow instructions, but said the benefits of the pill outweigh potential risks. The Catholic Medical Association is among the groups that have raised objections to the pill. The association says it was disappointed in the decision, given the extensive medical studies demonstrating the risks and adverse effects. The drug maker has yet to release any information on Opel's potential pricing. I'm Meg Oliver in New York. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the nation will run out of money to pay its bills in less than three weeks. Congressional leaders were set to meet with President Biden Friday, but the meeting has been postponed. President Biden and congressional leaders agreed to postpone their planned debt ceiling meeting until next week. The staff has met the last two days. We think it's productive for the staff to meet again. Sources tell CBS News the delay is a sign that the staff-led negotiations are going well. While those talks are progressing behind closed doors, both sides are still publicly pointing fingers at each other. We've been very clear that Congress needs to do their job. They must do their job. It's their constitutional duty uh, to get this done. I have not seen from there uh, a seriousness of the White House that they want to deal. It seems like they want to default more than they want to deal. During Tuesday's White House meeting, Democrats say House Speaker Kevin McCarthy refused to take defaulting on the nation's debt off the table. And former President Trump chimed in saying that may be good for the country. The White House referenced Trump's own push to get Congress to raise the debt limit four years ago without any spending cuts attached. Focus on what what he said in 2019, how um, paraphrasing here how uh, uh, defaulting is not something that we should be doing. And so the question is, what has changed? What has changed now from 2019 to today? Republican senators also dismissed the idea. He's not the president, so he doesn't have a vote on it currently. We're, it's not, we're not going to default. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sent a letter to colleagues Friday morning urging the GOP to take default off the table and added the clock is ticking. Willie James Inman, CBS News, the White House. Both parties are reacting to CNN's town hall this week with former President Trump, who repeated lies about the 2020 election and refused to say if he backs Ukraine in the war with Russia. Sources close to the ongoing investigation of Trump say he may have put himself in legal jeopardy by speaking in detail about his views of the January 6th insurrection and how he handled classified documents at his Florida estate reverberations in New Hampshire and across American politics in the wake of former President Donald Trump's incendiary statements at Wednesday night's town hall. Republican Senator Todd Young, who supported Trump in 2020, was asked if the performance concerned him. Of course it does. That's why 
uh, I don't intend to support him for the Republican nomination. New Hampshire resident Kristen Burke said she wouldn't vote for Trump again. I just think there was too much too much havoc that was that went on while he was in his presidency and I, I think it was too much for the country. In front of a Trump-friendly crowd, he rehashed false claims that the 2020 election was stolen. It was a rigged election. And lashed out at accuser E. Jean Carroll one day after a civil jury found Trump had sexually abused her. She's a whack job. That didn't sit well with New Hampshire independent voter Melanie Morton. I think it's amazing that he continues to shame and um, put her down. Trump also called January 6 a beautiful day. They were there with love in their heart. But the assault was deadly, with more than 140 police officers injured. It was chaos. We were fighting for our lives. Trump said he'd pardon a large portion of the rioters. Any thought on Trump? House Speaker Kevin McCarthy ignored questions about it, but a Missouri Republican senator weighed in. But if you're asking me, do I think you should pardon people who engaged in like, rioting behavior? No, I don't. President Biden posted a video attacking Trump for the remarks, tweeting, do you want four more years of that? On the war in Ukraine, Trump refused to say Vladimir Putin was a war criminal or whether he backed Ukraine. Do you want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. Former New Jersey Republican Governor Chris Christie said he was stunned. I think he's a coward and I think he's a puppet of Putin. I really do. Leading New Hampshire Republican Jason Osborne said Trump's turn benefited potential challenger Ron DeSantis, whom he supports. I think the opening was there, and this just kind of solidifies it. And, uh, you know, tr- uh, President Trump is not changing his routine. He's not changing his rhetoric. CBS's Robert Costa. In New York City, the Marine veteran who put a fellow subway passenger into a fatal chokehold is now facing criminal charges. 24-year-old Daniel Penny didn't enter a plea during his brief arraignment, and a judge allowed him to be released on bond. Penny agreed to surrender his passport and not leave New York without approval. Lennon Edwards is an attorney for the family of Jordan Neely, the black man who died in the incident. Daniel Penny is getting a chance to rewrite what happened in the subway that, that day as time goes by. He's going to come up with more and more things to make himself look better. Prosecutors said they will ask a grand jury to indict Penny. Christopher Cruz, CBS News. Coming up, resilience in Ukraine. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. The most intense violence in months is happening along the Israel-Gaza border with an exchange of rocket fire and missile attacks. Friday morning, at least one Palestinian was killed in an airstrike on an apartment building in Gaza. CBS's Ian Lee. Sirens blare across southern Israel as rockets from Gaza streak across the sky. Palestinian militants have fired more than 500 in the past four days. Israel has intercepted many, but not all. One rocket hit an apartment building, killing an Israeli man and wounding five others. Another destroyed Miriam Karen's house. She asked, who knows what the future holds for us? I survived today, and that's what matters. In Gaza, the suffering also continues. Israel hit roughly 150 targets. Palestinian officials say more than 30 people have been killed, including at least 10 civilians in the current fighting. This father carries the lifeless body of his 10-year-old daughter, one of the youngest victims. Parents there worry for their children, 
Melina al-Hindi says, we don't feel safe even at home. The worst fighting in months escalated after Israel targeted key commanders of Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Israel's prime minister warned his country will kill whoever threatens it. Egyptian mediators are now working for a ceasefire. The question isn't if they'll succeed, but rather when they do, how long it will last. In a frontline city in Ukraine, while Russian attacks continue, a deputy mayor is sleeping in the cellar of her bombed-out house, trying to help the remaining residents live without water and electricity. CBS's Charlie Daggett was granted rare access to the town, three miles from Russian positions where people are hoping for a counteroffensive. Orakiv bears all the scars of a battleground town sitting squarely on the front line. Above ground, a ghost town of shattered glass and destroyed buildings. But below, we find Deputy Mayor Svetlana Mandrich keeping herself and her community together. How often does this town get hit? Every day, she said, every day we get strikes, grad missiles, rockets, even phosphorus bombs. She told us it's been getting much worse and much bigger. We can't hear the launch, she said, only the strike. So it's very scary for people who don't have enough time to seek cover. She takes us to a school that's been turned into part bomb shelter, part community center. The last children left this town three weeks ago. It became too dangerous. From a population of around 14,000, there are now roughly 1,400 people left. We're told this town comes under attack day and night, including targeting this very school. Ukraine's government calls shelters like this a point of invincibility, and that defiant title is absolutely intentional. It's manned by volunteers, all residents here serving those who decided to stay despite the risks. What happens when you hear the explosions? Fear, of course. Every time there's an explosion, very scared to hear that our people may have died. As if on cue, she calmly explains, that was ours, outgoing. There are hundreds of places like this where residents facing anything from power outages to daily bombardment can meet to get warm, get fed, grab a hot shower, get their laundry done, even get a haircut from a hairdresser who comes once a week. This is like a little village inside a village. You know, it's not even a village, she says. It's more like civilization within all the devastation. Valentina Petrivna told us her house no longer exists after being bombed, but she's not leaving her hometown. Aren't you worried about your safety being so close? I'm not so worried, she said. I'm more worried about my children. My son is fighting and my grandchildren are in Zaporizhia. They share more than a hot drink and each other's company. They're united in defiance and hope that the war will end soon and families will once again be reunited. 
Now, even though that town is directly on the firing line, residents there tell us they can't wait for that counteroffensive to begin, to push Russians back far enough so they're no longer interested in randomly bombing their neighborhoods. Back in the U.S., a very special Mother's Day for a New York mom. Her family was faced with an agonizing choice as her son was in desperate need of an organ transplant. For the Castro family, this Mother's Day means so much more. For years, Tara's son, Zach, was suffering from primary sclerosing cholangitis, a potentially deadly liver disease. I was just very fatigued, lethargic. Uh, I was jaundiced. My skin, my eyes were yellow. Uh, my legs were swollen. In October, doctors told Zach he'd need a liver transplant. And the best match in the family, his big sister, Kayla. She says she didn't hesitate to volunteer. It's just what I knew I had to do. For their mom, Tara, it meant both of her children undergoing a serious procedure. I was definitely afraid, but I have to say, too, I was more excited for the outcome because I knew that it was going to give Zachary a, you know, a second chance in life. A team of more than 20 at Mount Sinai performed the all-day operation, simultaneously removing a large section of Kayla's liver and transplanting it to Zach. The liver is remarkable. It will grow to the size that he needs and the size that she needs. Dr. Sandy Florman, director of Mount Sinai's Transplant Institute, says the procedure was a complete success for both Kayla and Zach. Zachary should be able to live his entire life with this piece of liver. People who have transplants can go on to literally do anything you can imagine. Zach says he's more alive and energetic than he's felt in years, and he's pursuing his dream of becoming a court officer. And he has his big sister to thank. I'm very grateful for her. She's a, she's a lifesaver. She saved my life. And their relieved mom says she's proud of the children she raised. Both of them, they're just resilient. And just to even see them both, my son was up walking, you know, the next day. He was a fighter. A Mother's Day with the whole family together and healthy. Michael George, CBS News, New York. Missouri's biggest city takes a stand on a cultural issue. Members of the Kansas City, Missouri City Council voted 12 to 1 to declare the city an LGBTQ sanctuary city. Mayor Quentin Lucas. To be in Kansas City, Missouri is to mean that you are in a city that accepts, promotes, and supports the rights of trans people. And I think that's something that's powerful. Missouri GOP Governor Mike Parson is expected to sign the anti-gender affirming care measure into law, joining at least 16 other states that have enacted similar laws restricting or banning gender affirming care for minors. Jim Crisula, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, breast cancer risk for black women. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. This time we're talking about a draft recommendation from an independent panel of experts that women should get mammograms every other year beginning at age 40 instead of at 50. Dr. Wanda Nicholson, vice chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, says the recommendation is for women at average risk for breast cancer, but says it will really help black women who are less likely to survive the illness. The task force notes that more research is needed on many fronts, including how to address health disparities affecting many, including Asian, indigenous and Latina women. Nicholson says the change in the age recommendation for screening is based on improved technology and treatment methods. What has happened is we have now new and more inclusive evidence and science that has provided us with the information we've needed and enabled us to expand 
or broaden our recommendation to now say that all women should be screened beginning at age 40 and screened every other year until age 70, 74. And that's because now, rather than in 2016, where the 40 to 49-year-olds, the evidence showed a small benefit, we now have new and inclusive science that squarely shows a moderate benefit, so definitely an increase in benefit. And that's what's allowed us to broaden our recommendation to say all women starting at age 40. Okay. I've got to ask you about some of the disparities that you speak about, because I know that for so many things, Black women and Latina women and Asian women are so much more at risk because of, you know, racism and exams and that kind of thing. But you also talk here, the panel, I mean, talks about how Black women have generally more aggressive breast cancers and poorer survival. Why is that? Well, some key points to know, and, it's, and it's, these are sobering These are sobering statistics, Allison. They're sobering t- statistics and, and unacceptable, and certainly unacceptable to the task force. We know that Black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer compared to all women. We can also see elevated rates of mortality, morbidity and mortality among American Indian females as well. And um, there's several reasons that may be contributing to this. First, I would say that um, I would encourage Black women to definitely follow our new recommendation for screening starting at age 40 and every other year until 74. What we found that in modifying this recommendation that it can reduce breast cancer deaths by about 20% for all women and with a slightly higher rate of about 24% in Black women. So certainly screening is an important, critical next step. But what we have to also recognize is that we can't screen our way out of this disparity. So let me say that again. As important as screening is, and as important as screening is the task force, we can't screen our way out of this disparity. One of the uh, gaps that we see in care for Black women is that in many cases, they undergo their mammogram. But when they have an abnormal mammogram, they, they some in many cases may not get timely follow-up visits, uh, indicated biopsies in a timely fashion. And most of all, they have to be, uh, they have to have access to um, equitable treatments and advancements in treatments. So that in totality, screening plus the downstream steps are, are the key to helping to, to further close this disparity in breast cancer deaths for Black women. Having said that, we also know that there are other factors affecting Black women. As you mentioned, we know that they can tend to get breast cancers at an earlier stage in their 40s. We also know that in many cases, those breast cancers can be a more aggressive form, uh, such as the triple negative breast cancers. And the truth is, is that we're not quite sure why that occurs. And as part of this recommendation statement, as in all of our recommendation statements, regardless of the topic, we do have a section where we're urgently calling for more research to better inform our future recommendations. And some of those key um, calls for research uh, do focus around Black women. We're asking the question, we need more research on why these inequities occur in care. We also need more research on why Black women tend to have more of these uh, more aggressive um, biomarkers regarding breast cancer compared to other women. So definitely additional research is needed. In the interim, screening is important and impactful and critical, along with the downstream steps of breast cancer care. I was curious as to whether you think the incidence among Black women is because of environmental justice, the quality of air, the number of factories there, the the stress levels that that Black people live under. Well, we know that 
different social determinants of health can impact Black women with regard to breast cancer, as well as impact multiple different populations with regard to other healthcare outcomes. So we know that there are likely a myriad of factors that can contribute to breast cancer diagnosis and perhaps the more aggressive forms of Black women. So that and so that could include your environment where you live and work, which you might be exposed to. That those certainly are factors that could occur. Um, and so the truth is that we do need to move forward with additional research in this area so we can understand um, whether environmental factors contribute, which there's certainly some early studies that suggest that, as well as to what extent those factors can affect um, the more aggressive cancers in Black women or the, and also the higher mortality rates in Black women. So a lot more research research to be done to have a better understanding of the uh, underlying mechanisms and physiology that contributes to the breast cancer mortality in Black women. Your report also suggested that more research is needed to look at the disparities that also face Hispanic, Latina, Native American, Indigenous women. And you were talking about everything from lack of access to care in rural communities to low income and other factors. And I know you're saying more research is, is needed, but what, what's your feel or what's early research showing you about what that does? Well, we know that with um, with breast cancer, as with other topics, with other healthcare outcomes, whether that be cardiovascular disease, um, uh, cancers, and, you know, other than other than breast cancers, that we know that access to care, early screening and treatment, early screening and access to equitable treatments can make a big difference, not just in mortality, but also in morbidity and your quality of life. And so we do see that there can be disparities in access um, based on geography, based on rural settings and access to care among underserved populations, uh, such, such as the different racial and ethnic groups that you mentioned. So we know that that can occur. Let me say that the task force is committed to all of these populations. Remember, our mission, our, our entire mission and vision is dedicated to improving the lives that, of people across the nation so that people across the nation can live healthier lives and longer lives. And as part of this, we're always looking at uh, ways in which our recommendation statements can inform disparities and can help to alleviate or reduce disparities. And this breast cancer recommendation statement is one of those topics in which we have looked very, very much in detail at the data and, and, and made recommendations that we believe will help all women, and in particular in this case, help improve and save the lives of Black women as well. Let me ask you one more quick question. What are your suggestions for elderly women as the population is getting older? At what point should you stop having mammograms or should you stop having mammograms? Well, let me first say what else we do know in this recommendation statement, a couple of additional things, and then I'll switch to what we don't know where we need more research. What we're also saying in this recommendation is that since 2016, we've also obtained more updated data on looking at uh, digital mammography as well as 3D mammography. You know, there's two different types of mammograms that women can obtain. And what we found in our new data is that either of those or both of those modalities, the digital mammography as well as the 3D, are equally are, are both effective uh, in breast cancer detection. So that's an additional positive good news in this recommendation statement. Uh, but there are two things that we don't quite know the answers to yet and two very important and impactful areas for further research. One, as you mentioned, is our older adults, our women who are 75 years of age and older. And as I've said earlier, these women are important members of our society. They're our mothers, our grandmothers, our aunts. 
um, you know, our friends at church and other organizations, and we love them dearly, and we want them to also live uh, longer and healthier lives, and the task force remains committed to them. At the time of this evidence review, we just simply did not have sufficient evidence in this older population, Allison, to really be able to make a recommendation for or against screening in this popula- in this population. There's just no clinical trials in, in women in this age group. So what are we doing? First, we're urgently calling for research in this area um, in our recommendation statement and reaching out um, urgently to funders, research funders and researchers to focus on this area. And so what are we also saying for patients? What should a patient do? So in the interim time, whenever we have a re- have a topic in which we're unable to make a recommendation, we label that as an I statement, meaning insufficient evidence. But what the patient needs to do is to have a one-to-one conversation with a, with their trusted clinician as to whether or not they should move forward with mammogram or not if they're in this age range while we're waiting for that urgently needed research that we've called for in the recommendation statement. That's Dr. Wanda Nicholson at the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Public comment on the draft recommendation will be taken through June 5th. Coming up, help for moms ahead of their special day. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. On the Iron Range, the new Minnesota Mining Museum is opening this month. A letter of love to big rigs and baseball. Chisholm is kind of remarkable in that it's, it's a small town that is not dying. Some people call it a little kingdom on the Iron Range. And if that's the case, then this must be the castle. Looking at this place, you feel like you're in the presence of royalty. It's a castle. It's a castle. A castle dedicated to how things used to be. This museum takes visitors down a 140-year-old path, back to the early days of iron ore mining. But many of the mines here were open pit in one part and underground in another part. Chisholm helped build the industry. The evidence can be found both inside and outside the museum. I I feel like a kid in a gigantic toy box. Chuck Palmquist worked in the industry for 40 years, and he comes from a mining family. These days, he helps take care of the machines from yesteryear, and he loves it. My great-grandfather worked in one mine. My dad worked where I used to work. My uncle worked in another mine. Everything you see on this 13-acre site once played an important role. It shows how haul trucks have gotten bigger over the decades and how giant drills and steam shovels, like steel dinosaurs, once roamed this landscape. I think it was eight people it took to run this, just a shovel. 
As technology advanced, much of what you see here became outdated and was simply given away. So as that equipment gets obsolete, the mining companies were happy to donate that. But not everything on site is connected to iron ore. One of the first Greyhound buses. It's not only the Greyhound bus, it's one of the first buses. There's also preservation of northern Minnesota logging, preservation of Chisholm's free press, and preservation of arguably the town's most famous figure. Do you know what it means? Yes. What? It means we're going to Minnesota to find Moonlight Graham. In the movie Field of Dreams, the characters played by Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones are tasked with finding Archibald Moonlight Graham in Chisholm, Minnesota. Graham was famous for playing baseball in the majors for just one inning, but he never got the ball hit to him, and he never got to bat. This is Doc Graham's chair when he retired. After his cup of coffee in the majors, Graham moved to Chisholm and became a doctor. He picked the town because of a lung condition. A doctor friend of his from the Chicago area recommended that he get up to a place where the air is clean and get away from inner city smoke and pollution. Like the museum itself, he's part of the past in Chisholm. But this is a town that's learned to stay alive by celebrating its history. You don't have to be a ghost town. Chisholm is kind of one of those amazing places that is, believes in itself no matter what, and they never say die. WCCO-TV's John Lauritsen. A Cedar Rapids, Iowa woman is thanking her lucky stars after getting struck by lightning in a store parking lot during a severe storm and living to tell her story. I step out my car and I close my door and I'm like grabbing towards my other, the back seat door, and all of a sudden it just, it just hit and I lost my hearing and I just kind of went to the ground. Amber Congleton says she's still shocked that she was struck by lightning. Still very conscious and everything. I just couldn't hear and like I said, my legs were just gone. Like I felt like I couldn't move them. And what happened to Amber is not common. According to the CDC, it's less than one in a million chance per year. And yeah, something UIHC's burn unit director has only see seen once them. in her quarter century I career. I saw one lightning injury when I was a resident, and I have not seen a lightning injury since in, in my 25 years of practice. Dr. Wibbenmeyer tells us the most common long-term health risks include cataracts as well as psychological and cognitive problems, all signs Amber will continue to be screened for after being exposed to several hundred volts. Lightning is basically this big electrical charge that's coming out of thunderstorms, and it is five times hotter than the surface of the sun which is very hard to quantify. As Iowa's News Now meteorologist Rebecca Kopelman explains, lightning will strike the highest object around. But if you happen to be holding something metal, in Amber's case, a car door, you're at risk of getting hit. Now, if you find yourself in a situation where you can't seek shelter, there are steps to follow. You're supposed to take a crouched position, knees bent, feet together, on your toes, so you minimize your contact with your ground, and you're supposed to be away from each other by 100 feet because lightning will jump. And tis the season for thunder and lightning. Especially this time of year, in the spring and summer months, this is the peak time for us to see frequent lightning in Iowa. Amber says she's still just trying to wrap her mind around it all. Very blessed, nonetheless. I'm definitely very thankful that it wasn't anything worse, but a little crazy. Amber says she's taking it day by day, and she still has aches and pains, and especially some soreness in her legs, but she thinks she'll be fine in the long run. Now, one lesson she learned from all of this is to pay closer attention to the weather. KGAN-TV's Nada Shama.
finally. In our series ahead of Mother's Day, Moms in Focus, CBS's Janet Shamley tells us about a program that is helping moms and caregivers in need get financial assistance with no strings attached. So you want this? Elias Flores could only dream of new soccer supplies last year. Okay, so first we need to figure out the size, though. Adriana Flores, a single mom of two boys, was watching every dollar. Even working full-time as an educator, she earns less than $40,000 a year. How challenging was it for you to make ends meet with the kids? We could get by, but how horrible is that to live your life just getting by? You know, that's not enjoying it. But she is now. Her finance is less worrisome. Thanks to a $500 cash payment Flores receives every month for the next two years. I don't stress as much because I have that little cushion. They are described like that. The Chicago area mom is among more than 3,200 families in the first ever Cook County Promise program. Guaranteed income for low-earning households. Over 200,000 families and individuals applied. The money is unconditional and unrestricted. What we have seen is people, especially mothers, are spending money on diapers food for their kids, sometime getting that interview so they can have a full-time job, or starting a small business. That's actually where all the cash is going. The Chicago area program is among 130 guaranteed income pilots across the country, funded by public and private dollars, offering stipends from 50 to $1,500 a month. I wish I had a well-paying job where I could make ends meet, but that's not the case. Flores was able to rent a tuxedo for Isaiah's prom. It looks like the oh World gosh. Cup one. And Elias has the right stuff for soccer. Seeing that joy on their face when I'm like, oh, you know, I can pay for this. Thank you. I like it. A safety net and dignity through direct payments. Janet Shamley and CBS News, Chicago. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.